0: The history of cinema is a vast web of loosely defined genres, subgenres, essays, critiques, and discussions about those films. One of the almost forgotten subgenres is the straight-to-video or made-for-cable erotic thriller, which was prominent on video store shelves and late-night cable through the late 80s and 90s. The new documentary We Kill for Love is a nearly three-hour essay documentary that traces the history of this genre. It highlights the key films, filmmakers, and actors that made these films, and investigates the impacts that they had, as well as the artistry or lack thereof in the latter days of this genre. The movie is exhaustive in its research and thrilling in its approach. Watching this documentary felt like a dream, something that exists on a different plane not unlike coming across one of these films late at night and being pulled in by a story that is almost surreal in its absurdity, but thrilling in its investigation of the human condition. We Kill for Love tracks the erotic thriller genre from film noirs like Double Indemnity. The films were known for their blend of sexuality and violence. They often featured titles like Hidden Obsession, Secret Games, Body Heat, or any number of combinations to evoke mystery and titillation. These films would go on to inspire much more mainstream versions like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. We Kill for Love approaches these works with a curiosity and vigor that is engrossing and exhilarating to witness. I wanted to dive more into this genre and into this film, so I asked filmmaker Anthony Penta to come on the show and talk about it. I thought I understood what an erotic thriller was. Like, it's a genre of film that I've always considered myself to love. So when I watched your film, I was like in awe of the fact that I probably have not heard of 95% of the films in the movie. How did you even start to scratch the surface of this film?
1: I think like most people, I entered the erotic thriller through the front door. I always wanted to see more films like Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Jade that sort of thing. And I didn't really know how to start. And around 2015, when I started this project, there wasn't really a lot of information on the internet at all about erotic thrillers. And of course, the few articles that existed for online publications always referenced the same small pool of studio films. I just had to dig through clandestine file trading sites, IMDB. I bought a VCR. I bought a Laserdisc player. I just started soaking up the movies. And sort of in the manner of spreading like a stain on a tablecloth, I just started finding more. And I think the first thing that I found was the actors in the films. I began finding actors like Amy Lindsay, Tawny McClure, Kira Reed, Rochelle Swanson, Tim Abel, John Henry Richardson. There's this sort of shadow pantheon of actors who performed in only these films, these 1990s erotic thrillers direct to video erotic thrillers and for me they were like the lost people of this new mysterious enchanting world and i just wanted to be around them all the time i wanted to see all their movies and so it was the actors i think that was the first the first thing i found that really led me into the lost world of these films and i watched a lot of movies in a very short amount of time and after i'd seen about a hundred of them I, i just there was no going back and it started dawning on me that that this truly was a lost world of film that as you just said and as you indicated in your review of the film Most people don't know about the breadth and depth of this movement. Most people have never seen these films or they have vague misty memories of watching late night cable television in the 1990s. They have vague memories of walking the long carpeted aisles of blockbuster video and renting a movie like called Illicit Behavior or Die Watching or Night Eyes. But the whole movement... It just sort of disappeared into the mists of time. And I think furthermore, the whole movement in the early 2000s got sort of quietly and quickly hidden away in our cultural attic like that madwoman from Jane Eyre. And when I went up to that attic and and met this woman and found out about her story, I, I just became obsessed with it. And I wondered, how did we as a culture hide away this woman in this attic why did we do this what does it mean and the idea of making a documentary started evolving out of that
0: yeah and i i love these type of essay documentaries i mean i'm one that like my wife doesn't like a lot of like uh cinema outside of like you know kind of the traditional standard fare and then she has a weird love of like slasher films, which is cool because we can watch like 80s slasher films together and genre films like that. But she also loves watching documentaries about films. So I feel like we watch a lot of films about horror. We've watched a lot of films about hammer films. We've watched films about the there was even a great essay film I saw a while ago about, you know, the teen uh the teen comedy, you know, from the 90s, early aughts and so you know with those films like i really feel like i you know have had a grasp and i and i really do mean it that i was just like i felt completely like taken care of in this film like i was being shown a lot of stuff that i want to see but also like how have i not heard of all of these films you know and i think that that was such a beautiful thing that you did with the film and and it made me want to dive more into this
1: that is really great to hear joshua thank you very much and uh i know that the movie is an ambitious movie and that it's a long movie but i felt very strongly when i was making we kill for love that nobody was going to be able to do this you know again people have things like normal lives you know they have spouses and children and jobs and stuff and i i just realized that no one was ever going to be able to sit down like i did for 5 to 6 years and just surround themselves with these movies and do this project. And so in making We Kill for Love, I felt very strongly as I was doing it that I was making a kind of Egyptian tomb. And that, and that one day, 100 years from now, 400 years from now, somebody was going to watch Secret Games 3 or Night Eyes 4 or animal instincts too and they were going to marvel at how beautiful and enchanting and weird it was and they're going to want to find more movies like that and they will be very quickly led hopefully to my movie and i felt like my movie had to contain everything that the uh, that the erotic thriller would need in its journey into the afterlife like that Egyptian tomb, the hieroglyphs needed to be there, all the people, all the movies. I needed to pack as much into that room as I possibly could. And it had to be this one room, this one bunker. It had to be this one place where it all existed. And that's why I put that bunker in the movie. The movie opens with the discovery of that bunker. That bunker is, for me, metaphorically what I was trying to do in making We Kill for Love.
0: Yeah, I wanted to point that out too. I thought that was a really interesting kind of inclusion of the kind of reenactment type. They're not reenactments per se, but the kind of you know narrative part of the documentary that's kind of pushing it forward of the person searching through the VHS and and then the way you use the interviews and stuff i feel like you really captured the tone of these films like within the documentary um like it feels very it feels like this whole genre of film encapsulates the exact feeling that the films contain that it does feel like mysterious like where did these go how do we find them and i want to ask was that on your mind while you were making it as far as like the tone
1: it certainly was I I wanted the extraneous material that I photographed to have the same tone and feeling of the movies um, that have this enchanting, almost phosphorescent undersea quality. You know, a lot of erotic thrillers are lit in this kind of blue moonlight, magenta, red highlight, kind of n- neo neon noir sort of sort of look. Uh, Many of them are. There are just as many that aren't. But um, I wanted the movie to have that tone and feel to it. And putting someone from the near future as a character in the movie served a couple of functions for me. The first was that that character, the archivist, the detective, can be a kind of stand-in for me. The person could be me in the movie looking for these movies but that person could also be a stand-in for the audience. And that person goes into an erotic thriller. They go into the world of those movies. And the third thing that that person really provided, which was very important to me, was there's a lot of ephemera of this film movement that I had collected that was important. There were VHS tapes. And of course, the VHS tape the technology that developed the VHS tape, its eventual rise and fall, the erotic thriller kind of rides the VHS tape, rise and fall. Sort of it accompanied it. So technologically, there were elements, VHS tapes, laser discs, DVDs, but there was also posters, there was TV guides, there was pulp novels, there were gothic romance novels, there were magazines that the actors had originally been profiled in. All of these Things, the paper ephemera and physical ephemera had to be in the movie. I, I've seen documentaries where people talk about a magazine or a book or a poster or something, and they someone just does a Google image search, and they throw up an image of it. And I didn't want to go that route. I, I wanted everything that was discussed and talked about in the movie to be in the movie, to be a physical object right there in a bunker on a desk, and it was ma- it was massively labor intensive and expensive uh, for me to to buy all this stuff. You know, if Monique Parent talks about you know, being in a magazine or, or, uh, Fred Olin Ray talks about, you know, his early time directing. I had to go find some ephemera that told that story like a magazine or whatever, and have actual hands flipping through those pages. Someone talks about the posters as Chloe King talks about the posters, telling a story of this genre of men and women in conflict I had to go get those posters for Dangerous Passion, for Basic Instinct, for In the Heat of Passion, and put them on screen and show them on a wall. It was very important to me that the viewer felt that they were entering this world and that all the ephemera of that world were right there in front of them.
0: In some ways, watching the film feels like... A dream to me that was one of the things that kept coming up like i feel like like you kind of mentioned earlier that there's like these vague memories of maybe seeing it on cable there's like interesting memories that were coming up with that but all of that feels like a dream and i feel like the film almost captured that as well but
1: it feels like a dream to me too technology in many ways was mediating erotica for us We we didn't know this at the time, but as opposed to the earlier days where print was mediating or film, for us, the technology of video was mediating sexuality. And for a lot of us, it's this sort of spooky, indistinct, staticky world that it came out of, that erotica was attempting, let's say, to speak to us through this primitive analog medium of video feel sorry for the younger generation growing up now where everything is in high definition, crystal clear and available for free all over the place. And it just I'm glad that I grew up at a time when that 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 kind of content was this part of this difficult video world, a very difficult world to access. And it was indistinct and rare
0: yeah that came to my mind a lot during the film because i think of you know i'm technically a millennial i'm 37 and i feel like maybe my generation was the last generation to have that experience you know of of it being something that felt dangerous it was something that felt enticing it felt it felt like something um it felt like something ephemeral something that was out of reach in a lot of ways. And and I think that in some ways, maybe that was a bad thing. And in some ways, I think it was like a really interesting way to grow up. and 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 I appreciate that the film captured that. What I really loved about it was actually, and I think I've said it in my review, is that I really appreciated that these films that almost felt like they were just existed, it was so nice to see the people and their thoughts about making those films and the artistry that went into it and how thoughtful they actually were. And at least at the beginning, I think that you know the film kind of talks about how later on it started to become just content to get on a lot of the stations, but a lot of these filmmakers and actors and stuff that we get to meet in the film I loved getting to feel the human side of it on what attracted them to this story. So can you speak to that a little bit and what your experience was? Like I was very happy
1: that? to find the practitioners of these films, the directors, the writers, the producers, the actors, and talk to them about their work. I, given that a lot of these people were specialists in uh, a human story called erotica, Uh, They weren't specialists in martial arts movies. They weren't specialists in stunts or action. They were specialists in a different kind of thing that people do, and that was movies that were about uh, sexuality and the erotic. And so I kind of worried about tracking them down. A lot of people worked under assumed or alternate names during the era because of this. A lot of people have distanced themselves from their work. It made tracking a lot of people down uh, not easy. But I was pleasantly surprised to find that they they love their work, you know, and uh, they love finding another person who loved their work. Also, I have to say, you know, when I would meet with people like composer Ashley Irwin or the director Lawrence Lanoff, or when I met with Kira Reed and, and I knew all their movies, uh, I knew scenes from their movies. I talked to them about their work. Oftentimes uh, uh, it had become sort of a hazy memory for them they didn't remember it as you know as much it was all very present to me in my mind and it wasn't as present for a lot of people but i found them to be really really uh they really had a lot of faith in what they did a lot of them they think the you know erotica is important and necessary and it's another aspect of human experience the pie chart of human experience is not just muscularized men in tights beating each other up and flying through the air right that's not 100% of the pie chart it's not it's not guys shooting at each other or women shooting at, e- at other people it's not you know that the diet of movies that we're fed and the things that are that that uh, our culture embraces I think that we've amplified certain aspects of the pie chart, especially people fighting each other, uh, way more than people smooching around or the intimacy of relationships. And in many ways, a lot of that content has been relegated, you might say ghettoized, to uh, sub-worlds of cinema that no one pays attention to, like um, women's fiction, melodrama, Lifetime movies. And... Derogatory pet phrases are invented for it. Things like chick flick. uh, Lifetime movie is used as a derogatory term, even for movies that aren't lifetime movies. And these uh, little pet phrases are sort of cultural indicators that um, we're denigrating and ghettoizing certain kinds of stories. And I think the direct-to-video erotic thrillers, they weren't just... Naked people, you know, that these stories were erotic stories about couples. There's often a tactile feeling of intimacy. They often import styles from women's fiction, like the Gothic romance, romance literature, even the soap opera and the melodrama. And I think those aspects of it sort of helped the whole genre disappear. So I was very happy to find people who love the movies. They love talking about them. They love they love their work. And they still had a lot of faith in what it was trying to do. And oftentimes I would talk to them about modern stuff. And I think every single subject I talked to mentioned that show Game of Thrones. I considered having a whole sequence in the movie where I just run all the different moments where all the different actors and directors talk about Game of Thrones with frustration because a lot of stuff that happens on Game of Thrones they felt was more explicit than what they were doing in the 90s and it's so accepted now so in addition to loving their work and really having faith in what they were doing and the stories they were telling they also saw how it was being revived in a lot of modern ways and and um it They were just very interesting conversations to have with them, and I was. I was happy. I, the actors and whatnot were included late in the movie. I. It, they were a late addition. I originally wasn't going to add actors to it, but I'm very happy that I did.
0: Yeah, I think that was a really interesting part, and I. I really think that talking about that stigma of that work back in the day is interesting as well i mean i think a high profile example it's not an erotic thriller but adjacent would be showgirls you know and how showgirls was such a flop and also with a lot of the nudity and sexuality and stuff in the film it kind of in some ways tanked elizabeth berkeley's career but only recently i feel like people are revisiting that film and appreciating it for the for what Paul Verhoeven was trying to do at the time. And, and even Elizabeth Berkeley herself has been able to embrace it and post about it and talk about it and be at screenings and stuff, which she wouldn't have done, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and so I thought that that was an interesting kind of parallel a little bit because I had been reading about that whole situation right around the time when your film came out, um, and seeing a lot of these actors talking about the stigma of their work they were doing at the time. And, and I loved seeing that they were able to like come and talk about it now. So I'm glad you pointed that out.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I, you know, the, the idea of erotica being a stigma is an important one, you know, that these movies, um, there are whole websites devoted to cutting out just the nudity and scenes of sexual intimacy in movies and they post them regardless of the movie. I mean, actors like Sigourney Weaver can have these scenes cut out of their movies and posted on sites. And so uh, these sorts of things, the stigma, you know, are, it, it's a, it is an important topic, you know, and they, um, it makes it somewhat difficult for all actors, you know, not just the actors, the specialists of the nineties direct video era, but all actors.
0: You know, actually speaking of that in some ways, there has been a resurgence, I feel like, of interest in this genre. I mean, our local nonprofit cinema last year had a retrospective for the month of October uh, to be like 90s erotic thriller month. And then... um, I had a conversation specifically a couple of years ago with Michael Mohan, who did a film for Amazon called the voyeurs that was specifically inspired by this genre, uh, with Sydney Sweeney from euphoria starring in it. And, and I feel like there has been a resurgence of this genre a little bit. Um, do you want to speak to that at all?
1: In many ways, making we kill for love. I was motivated by the fact that if I didn't make this movie, somebody else was going to make it that doctor skin guy was going to make it you know and it was going to be really gross so the, one of the things that motivated me is that i felt like i needed to make it before somebody else could um in terms of the modern revival of the erotic thriller it's an interesting concept it's a, it it's um would take a while to talk about in many ways it seems like there is a desire to see the revival of this kind of movie. And certainly Adrian Lyne's new film, uh, deep waters was really a hotly anticipated. It seemed incredible that, um, in an era of comic book movies and superhero reboots that the, a hero font from the DTV erotic thriller era, uh, a one of the royalty of the erotic thriller was going to get back on the throne and make a real deal erotic thriller again. And it was, it was, you know, that people were posting images of Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas on the set. They were, they were so hot to see this movie and it didn't ha- have quite the splash, didn't make quite the splash it should have. It was a uh, sort of um, really polarizing for people, that movie. And other films have followed suit and have auditioned the idea. And you mentioned Michael Mohan's The Voyeurs. It was a superlative film. And like the direct-to-video erotic thrillers of the 90s, it was unapologetically lurid. It, Like Brian De Palma's films, it was unapologetically lurid. It was about people voyeuristically peeping on other people and the things that people get up to behind closed doors and uh, visible through open windows and loft. It was. It had a lot of the energy of the DTV erotic thriller, probably more than a lot of modern films that get made. Uh, but at the same time, that you have people hungering for new erotic thrillers, uh, talking about them on social media. Uh, chewing through them and wondering what happened, where these movies? There always have been erotic thriller-like movies sort of percolating below the surface, and they don't really get a lot of attention or play, and people don't talk about them very often. Um, Speaking of Lifetime, the women's fiction channel, Lifetime, and now a new streaming service called Passion Flicks run by Tosca Musk, the sister of Elon Musk, the space explorer, electric car magnate, and social media impresario, um, she has her own channel called Passion Flicks, in which she's making new movies that are very close to being erotic thrillers. And certainly, the Lifetime movies that get made now—they—they Lifetime movies are in an interesting trajectory. They, they were always kind of unapologetically lurid. And now that, that they can show more and more as uh, society's apprehension about seeing erotic content has eroded a little bit, the uh, Lifetime movies now can be a lot like erotic thrillers of the direct-to-video era. And the unapologetically lurid titles that these movies are sold under, like Pool Boy Nightmare, Psycho yoga instructor stalked by my doctor. My girlfriend and I just watched the first four Stalked by My Doctor movies. I I'd only ever seen the first one, but I we watched all four, and it's incredible how uh, they're on an in, interesting trajectory. I, I think they're heading toward Twin Peaks, is what I think. I think that they've they've given up on like even maintaining an air of seriousness and they're they know how campy they are and they're just just diving in some of them at least but uh the public the so the public you know reaction to the of the revival of the erotic thriller it sort of takes place on two levels on one level it's people saying where are all the movies why doesn't why aren't there more erotic thrillers and what they're really saying is why isn't hollywood making more of them But on the other level, the movies are being made as the energy of the erotic thrillers just long ago dispersed into Lifetime movies. There's a whole subculture of new black American films, black erotic thrillers made by black film directors and writers for black audiences. You can go to the Maverick Entertainment website and have a look if you don't believe me. They're, They're all there percolating below the surface. And also, Bollywood went through a hugely productive phase of making erotic thrillers that are, besides the singing and dancing, are legible erotic thrillers that are indistinguishable from the direct-to-video erotic thrillers of the 90s. And no one talks about them. So, on the one hand, you have all these movies that are like erotic thrillers, oftentimes one softcore scene shy of being a real-deal erotic thriller, and they don't get a lot of cultural play. And on the other hand, you have Hollywood making them occasionally and auditioning them, and they have very polarizing effect on audiences, and people really aren't sure what to make of them. And I'm not sure when I read the reactions if people are really going to like it or want to see. If I'm not even sure if it's possible for the erotic thriller to make it come back.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. And I also kind of think about You know, I never even thought about it until you were just speaking. I was like, I don't know if France ever stopped making erotic thrillers. (laughs) I mean, I I think it's specifically about a film that came out of some number of years ago called Stranger by the Lake, which I really loved.
1: I own that movie on Blu-ray and I I still haven't seen it. Uh, Oh, it's beautiful. It was part of my project to, at the end of We Kill for Love... I don't talk a lot at the end of you know We Kill for Love. I sort of closed the door on the erotic thriller when the '90s direct-to-video era sunsetted, and I don't talk a lot about modern revivals about the erotic thriller. But I do open the door, and I have an interview subject named Douglas Kesey who talks about the that the energy of the erotic thriller has dispersed, and there are new audiences for these movies. And I there's a uh, I think you can actually call it allegedly a legibly lesbian erotic thriller called *The Monkey's Mask*, which I saw many years ago. I love that movie. I include that and include other. And we talks briefly about the new black erotic thrillers that are being made. And I show clips from *Obsessed*. And so, I think some of that. I think this this French film that you mentioned, uh, *Stranger by the Lake*, is part of that. And it's new. I always wondered, you know, myself. Uh, where are all the gay erotic thrillers? You know, I'm just, I never, you know, that there was a sort of unspoken taboo during the 1990s uh, about, you know, that you could show women smooching around, you could show homosexuality if it was female, female homosexuality, but gay men are very rare in erotic thrillers and certainly there, there aren't that many. And there's only a couple of movies from the 90s like Black Harbor starring Alan Rickman and Norman Reedus, I believe is his name. And then there was that Michael Caine movie, Death Trap, starring Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. A couple of movies from the 90s that had these twists at the end in which it was revealed, oh my gosh, two guys are smooching around. And that was like the big reveal of the movies. It was so, it was so taboo That it only appeared in these really, you know, a a couple of ways is like a big surprise in these movies. But for the most part, it it just was wasn't addressed at all.
0: I love this conversation. This could we could go. I could go on for hours (laughs) and having more. (laughs) But uh, to be respectful of your time, I think I, I think we said half an hour. But so to be respectful of your time, I think the really the big last question it's kind of a two-parter is like if people were beyond watching your film, if people were wanting to get a feel for erotic thrillers beyond maybe they saw basic instinct or fatal attraction, where do you think people should start? And
1: then what do you want people to
0: take away from this film?
1: I think that the direct to video erotic thrillers of the nineties could find a new tribe of people. And some argument could be made that they never found their tribe. There were some people who found them and saw them for what they were. But maybe those people still haven't... So it's possible that the erotic thriller of the 90s, the direct video erotic thriller, is still waiting to find its audience. And I think those people are out there, and I think some of them are watching We Kill for Love, my documentary, and realizing that they might be there waiting for them, like a lost city that's sort of hiding in plain view. I think that you stand the best chance of really finding and liking them uh, if you're really into romance. (laughs) I think they're very romantic movies, and if you're not into that kind of stuff, if you're not into romance, if you're not into an ethereal atmosphere that foregrounds a tactile feeling of intimacy, that you you might find them off-putting and that very thing may have kept them underground for as long as they have been underground but I think the movies are there you know I my feeling is that if you're starting off on an appreciation of these lost films just ask yourself what kind of movies that you like to see if you like ethereal stories of suburban alienation and uh, couples in sort of psychologically torturous erotic thrillers find the Gregory Dark erotic thrillers, the director Gregory Dark. Uh, He made about 25 of them, and they're all amazing. Animal Instincts 2, Secret Games 3, Object of Obsession, Carnal Crimes, Night Rhythms. These titles, for people who love DTV erotic thrillers, are like some of the greatest movies. Go find those. Uh, If you like really fun, popcorn-munching erotic thrillers that are sort of campy, the Jim Wynorski, Fred Olin Ray erotic thrillers are for you. You know, Sorceress, Body Chemistry 3, Possessed by the Night. Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray made some of the funnest erotic thrillers of the era, totally conscious of how campy they were, and they're just a lot of fun to watch. And finally, if you're into the kind of romantic, aspirational, uh, softcore erotic thrillers set in a fantastical, kind of weightless version of Los Angeles, uh, my recommendation would be to track down the Playboy movies, the Playboy movies financed under their three clandestine film imprints, cameo pictures mystique films and indigo entertainment playboy financed about 70 of these movies in the 1990s they worked at white heat and the mystique films in particular are just a treasure trove of beautifully photographed erotic thrillers set in aspirational los angeles locations they're all amazing. Everybody's gorgeous. They live in amazing places. They're, I just watch them. And as you said earlier, I feel like I'm in a sedate dream. I'm just, I've been sedated and I'm just dreaming and I love it. So track down those. So that that's what I have to say. And in terms of what people, what I want people to find in, uh, in We Kill for Love, I think, as I indicated earlier, When I was making We Kill for Love, I felt like I was putting together a time capsule. And just as you take a time capsule and you put Polaroid photographs, you put objects that are important to you, you might put a videotape or a DVD, you know, you... You put in a time capsule, a collection of everything that you thought was meaningful. And one day somebody is going to dig that time capsule up and they're going to find your diary and the Polaroid photos and they're going to, the videotape with a personal message from you. And that's why, that's how I made We Kill for Love. We Kill for Love is packed like a time capsule full of all the ephemera of these movies. And my feeling is, is that you don't have to like all of it. You know, it it's just something to dig through. And I always thought that We Kill for Love will finally find its tribe, and it is finding them now when people have the luxury to just press the pause button, when they have the luxury to come back a day later, when they can watch it in different pieces. It, it's something that As you know, as a documentary filmmaker, we make a time-based media where people have to sit down in one sitting, but I prefer to look at We Kill for Love and my creative work in general as like I'm making a museum. And the first watch of that is I'm guiding you through the museum and showing you all the display cases, but the museum is always there. You can always go to the museum. It's always ready, and you can always go back and browse it at your leisure now and find what you like. And that's We Kill for Love. It's a museum of this special film genre and these special people.
0: I love that. And speaking of a museum, there is a beautiful uh, Blu-ray release of the film from Yellowvale Pictures and Vinegar Syndrome um, that my brother is actually apparently there is an audience cause it's sold out of the slip cases pretty fast. And my brother is actually going to Aurora for me to vinegar syndromes shop to grab me one with the slip cover. <laughs> and, uh, but I actually did I actually did have one more question. Do you think there will be a VHS release ever?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I sure hope so. I would love to put together a double VHS release of *We Kill for Love* and have like a, a cardboard uh, design box for it. Um, I could ref- I could easily reformat the film into a four x three kind of VHS tape. Yes, uh, I definitely have considered it, and as a matter of fact, some people approached me after the screening in Los Angeles. In the Vidiot's theater, and asked me the same question: when, when, and where is going to be the VHS tape release? (laughs) So, I'd love it if that happened. I'd love it. I I don't, I don't know where and when that's going to happen, but I I would love it if that happened. So, we'll, we'll see. Maybe uh, Yellow Veil, my distributor, can make a a deal with one of those companies like Screaming Skull that releases stuff on VHS tape, and Mm -hmm. maybe we can put together a VHS release of the movie and the bonus material and that sort of thing who knows
0: we kill for love is now available on video on demand for kios i'm joshua labior